Section 11 of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Ken Campbell. The South Pole by Roel Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section 11, Volume 1, Chapter 5. On the Barrier, Part 1. We had thus arrived on January 14th a day earlier than we had reckoned at this vast, mysterious, natural phenomenon, the barrier. One of the most difficult problems of the expedition was solved, that of conveying our drought animals in sound condition to the field of operations. We had taken 97 dogs on board at Christiansund. The number had now increased to 116, and practically all of these would be fit to serve in the final march to the south. The next great problem that confronted us was to find a suitable place on the barrier for our station. My idea had been to get everything, equipment and provisions, conveyed far enough into the barrier to secure us against the unpleasant possibility of drifting out into the Pacific, in case the barrier should be inclined to clave. I had therefore fixed upon ten miles as a suitable distance from the edge of the barrier, but even our first impression of the condition seemed to show that we should be spared a great part of this long and troublesome transport. Along its outer edge the barrier shows an even flat surface, but here, inside the bay, the conditions were entirely different. Even from the deck of the Fram we were able to observe the great disturbances of the surface in every direction, huge ridges with hollows between them extending on all sides. The greatest elevation lay to the south in the form of a lofty arched ridge which we took to be about 500 feet high on the horizon, but it must be assumed that this ridge continued to rise beyond the range of vision. Our original hypothesis that this bay was due to the underlying land seemed therefore to be immediately confirmed. It did not take long to moor the vessel to the fixed ice foot, which here extended for about a mile and a quarter beyond the edge of the barrier. Everything had been got ready long before. Galland had put our ski in order, and every man had his right pairs fitted. Ski boots had long ago been tried on time after time, sometimes with one, sometimes with two pairs of stockings. Of course, it turned out that the ski boots were on the small side. To get a bootmaker to make a roomy boot is, I believe, an absolute impossibility. However, with two pairs of stockings, we could always get along in the neighborhood of the ship. For longer journeys, we had canvas boots, as already mentioned. On the remainder of the outfit, I need only mention the alpine ropes, which had also been ready for some time. They were about 30 yards long and were made of very fine rope, soft as silk, specially suited for the use in low temperatures. After a hurried dinner, four of us set out. The first excursion was quite a solemn affair, so much depended on it, the weather was of the very best, calm with brilliant sunshine, and a few light feathery clouds in the beautiful pale blue sky. There was warmth in the air, which could be felt even on this immense ice field. Seals were lying around the ice foot as far as the eye could reach, great fat mountains of flesh, food enough to last us and the dogs for years. The going was ideal. Our ski glided easily and pleasantly through the newly fallen loose snow but none of us was exactly in training after the long five-month sea voyage, so that the pace was not great. After half an hour's march, we were already at the first important point, the connection between the sea ice and the barrier. 
This connection had always haunted our brains. What would it be like? A high, perpendicular face of ice, up which we should have to haul our things laboriously with the help of tackles? Or a great and dangerous fissure, which we should not be able to cross without going a long way round? We naturally expected something of the sort. This mighty and terrible monster would, of course, offer resistance in some form or another. The Mystic Barrier all accounts without exception, from the days of Ross to the present time, had spoken of this remarkable natural formation with apprehensive awe. It was as though one could always read between the lines the same sentence, Hush, be quiet, the mystic barrier. One, two, three, and a little jump, and the barrier was surmounted. We looked at each other and smiled. Probably the same thought was in the minds of all of us. The monster had begun to lose something of its mystery. The terror, something of its force, the incomprehensible, was becoming quite easy to understand. Without striking a blow, we had entered into our kingdom. The barrier was at this spot about twenty feet high, and the junction between it and the sea ice was completely filled up with driven snow, so that the ascent took the form of a little gentle slope. This spot would certainly offer us no resistance. Hitherto we had made our advance without a rope. The sea ice, we knew, would offer no hidden difficulties, but what would be the condition of the things beyond the barrier was another question. And as we all thought it would be better to have the ropes on before we fell into a crevice than afterwards, our further advance was made with a rope between the first two. We proceeded in an easterly direction up through the little valley formed by Mount Nelson on one side and Mount Ronakin on the other, the reader must not, however, imagine from these imposing names that we were walking between any formidable mountain ranges. Mount Nelson and Ronakin were nothing but two old pressure ridges that had been formed in those far-off days when the mighty mass of ice had pushed on with awful force without meeting hindrance or resistance, until at this spot it met a superior power that clove and splintered it and set a bound to its further advance. It must have been a frightful collision, like the end of the world. But now it was over. Peace. An air of infinite peace lay over it all. Nelson and Ronakin were only two pensioned veterans. Regarded as pressure ridges, they were huge, raising their highest summits over 100 feet in the air. Here, in the valley, the surface round Nelson was quite filled up, while Ronakin still showed a deep scar, a fissure, or hollow. We approached cautiously. It was not easy to see how deep it was and whether it had an invisible connection with Nelson or the other side of the valley. But this was not the case. On a closer examination, this deep cleft proved to have a solid, filled-up bottom. Between the ridges, the surface was perfectly flat and offered an excellent site for a dog camp. Captain Nielsen and I had worked out a kind of program of the work to be done, and in this it was decided that the dog should be brought on the barrier as quickly as possible, and there looked after by two men. We chose this place for the purpose. The old pressure ridges told the history of the spot plainly enough. We had no need to fear any kind of disturbance here. The site had the additional advantage that we could see the ship from it, and would always be in communication with those on board. From here the valley turned slightly to the south. After having marked the spot where our first tent was to be set up, we continued our investigations. 
the valley sloped gradually upwards and reached the ridge at a height of 100 feet. From this elevation we had an excellent view over the valley we had been following and all the other surroundings. On the north the barrier extended, level and straight, apparently without interruption, and ended on the west in a steep descent of Cape Man's Head, which formed the eastern limit of the inner part of the Bay of Wales, and afforded a snug little corner where we had found room for our ship. There lay the whole of the inner part of the bay, bounded on all sides by ice, ice, nothing but ice barrier, as far as we could see, white and blue. This spot, no doubt, would show a surprising play of color later on, and it promised well in this way. The ridge we were standing on was not broad, about 200 yards, I think, and in many places it was swept quite bare by the wind, showing the blue ice itself. We passed over it and made for the pass of Thermopyle, which extended in a southerly direction from the ridge, and after a very slight descent was merged in the great plain, surrounded by elevations on all sides a basin in fact the bare ridge we passed over to descend into the basin was a good deal broken up but the fissures were narrow and almost entirely filled up again with drift so that they were not dangerous the basin gave us the impression of being sheltered and cozy and above all it looked safe and secure this stretch of ice was with the exception of a few quite small hummocks of the shape of haycocks perfectly flat and free from crevices we crossed it and went up on the ridge that rose very gently on the south. From the top of this all was flat and even as far as we could see, but that was not saying much. For a little while we continued along the ridge in an easterly direction, without finding any place that was specially suited for our purpose. Our thoughts returned to the basin as the best sheltered place we had seen. From the height we were now on, we could look down onto the southeastern part of the Bay of Wales, in contrast to that part of the ice foot to which we had made fast, the inner bay seemed to consist of ice that had been forced up by pressure, but we had to leave a closer examination of this part till later. We all liked the basin and agreed to choose it as our future abode, and so we turned and went back again. It did not take long to reach the plain in our own tracks. After making a thorough examination of the surface and discussing the various possibilities, we came to the conclusion that a site for the hut was to be looked for on the little elevation that rose to the east. It seemed that we should be more snug there than anywhere else, and we were not mistaken. We soon made up our minds that we had chosen the best place the barrier had to offer. On the spot where the hut was to stand, we set up another ski pole, and then went home. The good news that we had already found a favorable place for the hut naturally caused great satisfaction on all sides. Everyone had been silently dreading the long and troublesome transport over the ice barrier. There was teeming life on the ice. Whenever we turned we saw great herds of seals, wendels, and crab-eaters. The great sea leopard which we had seen occasionally on the floes was not to be found here. During our whole stay in the Bay of Wales we did not see a single specimen of it nor did we ever see the Ross Seal. Penguins had not shown themselves particularly often, only a few here and there, but we appreciated them all the more. The few we saw were almost all Adelaide penguins. While we were at work making the ship fast, a flock of them suddenly shot up out of the water and onto the ice. They looked about them in surprise for a moment. Men and ships do not come their way every day. 
but it seemed as if their astonishment soon gave way to a desire to see what was happening. They positively sat and studied all of our movements. Only now and then they grunted a little and took a turn over the ice. What specifically interested them was evidently our work at digging holes in the snow for grapnels. They flocked about the men who were engaged in this, laid their heads on one side, and looked as if they had found it immensely interesting. They did not appear to be the least afraid of us, and for the most part we left them in peace. But some of them had to lose their lives. We wanted them for our collection. An exciting seal hunt took place the same day. Three crab-eaters had ventured to approach the ship and were marked down to increase our store of fresh meat. We picked two mighty hunters to secure the prey for us. They approached with the greatest caution, though this was altogether unnecessary, for the seals lay perfectly motionless. They crept forward in Indian fashion with their heads down and their backs bent. This looked fine. I chuckled, a laugh, but still with a certain decorum. Then there is a report. Two of the sleeping seals gave a little spasm, and do not move again. It is otherwise with the third. With snake-like movements it wiggled away through the loose snow with surprising speed. It is no longer target practice, but hunting real game. And the result is keeping with it. Bang, bang, and bang again. It is a good thing we had plenty of ammunition. One of the hunters uses up all of his cartridges and has to go back, but the others set off in pursuit of the game. Oh, how I laughed. Decorum was no longer possible. I simply shook with laughter. Away they went through the loose snow, the seal first and the hunter after. I could see by the movements of the pursuer that he was furious. He saw that he was in for something which he could not come out of with dignity. The seal made off with such a pace that it filled the air with snow. Although the snow was fairly deep and loose, the seal kept on the surface. Not so the hunter. He sank over his knees at every step, and in a short time was completely outdistanced. From time to time he halted, aimed, and fired. He himself afterwards asserted that every shot had hit. I had my doubts. In any case, the seal seemed to take no notice of them, for it went on with undiminished speed. At last the mighty man gave up and turned back. "'Beastly hard to kill,' I heard him say as he came on board. I suppressed a smile did not want to hurt the fellow's feelings. What an evening! The sun is high in the heavens in spite of the late hour. Over all this mountainous land of ice, over the mighty barrier running south, there lies a bright white shining light, so intense that it dazzles the eyes. But northward lies the night, leaden gray upon the sea. It passes into deep blue as the eye is raised, and pales by degrees until it is swallowed up in the radiant gleam from the barrier. What lies behind the night? That smoke-black mass, we know. That part we have explored, and have come off victorious, but what does a dazzling day to the south conceal? Inviting and attractive, the fair one lies before us. Yes, we hear you calling, and we shall come. You shall have your kiss, if we pay for it with our lives. The following day, Sunday, brought the same fine weather. Of course, there could be no thoughts of Sunday for us. Not one of us would have cared to spend the day in idleness. We were now divided into two parties, the sea party and the land party. 
The sea party, ten men, took over the Fram, while on this day the land party took up their abode on the barrier for a year or two, or whatever it might be. The sea party was comprised of Nielsen, Gertsen, Beck, and Sunbeck, Ludwig Hansen, Christensen, Ronnie, Notvet, Kutzen, and Olsen. The land party consisted of Prestud, Johansen, Helmer Hansen, Hansel, Bialand, Stuberund, Lindstrom, and myself. Lindstrom was to stay on board for a few days longer, as we still had to take most of our meals on the ship. The plan was that one party, composed of six men, should camp in a sixteen-man tent in the space between Ronnikin and Nelson, while another party of two were to live in a tent up at the butt site and build the hut. The last two were, of course, our capable carpenters, Bialand and Stuberud. By eleven o'clock in the morning, we were at least ready to start. We had one sledge, eight dogs, and provisions and equipment weighing altogether 660 pounds. It was my team that was to open the ball. The sea party had all collected on deck to witness the first start. All was now ready. After countless efforts on our part, or if it is preferred, after a thorough thrashing for every dog, we had at last got them in a line before the sledge in Alaska harness. With a flourish and a crack of the whip we set off. I glanced at the ship. Yes, as I thought, all of our comrades were standing in a row admiring the fine start. I am not quite sure that I did not hold my head rather high and look around with a certain air of triumph. If I did so, it was foolish of me. I ought to have waited. The defeat would have been easier to bear. For defeat it was, and a signal one. The dogs had spent half a year in lying about and eating and drinking, and had got the impression that they would never have anything else to do. Not one of them appeared to understand that a new era of toil had begun. After moving forward a few yards, they all sat down as though at a word of command, and stared at each other. The most undisguised astonishment could be read in their faces. When, at last, we had succeeded with another dose of the whip in making them understand that we really asked them to work, Instead of doing as they were told, they flew at each other in a furious scrimmage. Heaven help me! What work we had with those eight dogs that day! If it was going to be like this on the way to the pole, I calculated in the midst of the tumult that it would take exactly a year to get there, without counting the return journey. During all this confusion I stole another glance at the ship, but the sight that met me made me quickly withdraw my eyes again. They were simply shrieking with laughter, and loud shouts of the most infamous encouragement reached us. If you go on like that, you'll get there by Christmas, or, well done, stick to it, now you're off. We were stuck faster than ever. Things looked desperate. At last, with the combined strength of all animals and men, we got the sledge to move again. So our first sledge trip could not be called a triumph. We then set up our first tent on the barrier between Mounts Nelson and Ronakin, a large, strong tent for sixteen men, with a sheet for the floor sewed on. Round the tent wire ropes were stretched in a triangle, fifty yards on each side. To these the dogs were to be tethered. The tent was furnished with five sleeping bags and a quantity of provisions. The distance we had come was 1.2 geographical miles, or 2.2 kilometers, measured by the sledge meter. After finishing this work, we went up on the site selected for the station. Here we set up the tent, a similar tent to the others, for 16 men, 
for the use of the carpenters and marked out the hut site. According to the lay of the ground, we elected to make the house face east and west, not north and south, as one might have been tempted to do, since it was usually supposed that the most frequent and violent storms came from the south. We chose rightly. The prevailing wind was from the east, and thus caught our house on the most protected short wall. The door faced west. When this work was done, we marked out the way from here to the encampment below, and thence to the vessel with dark flags at every fifteen paces. In this way we should be able to drive with certainty from one place to another, without losing time if a storm should set in. The distance from the hut to the vessel was 2.2 geographical miles, or 4 kilometers. On Monday, January 16th, work began in earnest. About 80 dogs, six teams, drove up to the first encampment with all the provisions and equipment that could be loaded on the sledges, and 20 dogs. Stubruns and Bialen's teams went with a full load up to the other camp. We had some work indeed those first days to get the dogs to obey us. Time after time they tried to take the command from their masters and steer their own course. More than once it cost us a wet shirt to convince them that we were really the masters. It was strenuous work, but it succeeded in the end. Poor dogs. They got plenty of thrashing in those days. Our hours were long. We seldom turned in before eleven at night, and we were up again at five but it did not seem particularly hard. We were all alike, eager for the work to be finished as soon as possible, so that the Fram might get away. The harbor arrangements were not of the best. The quay she was moored to suddenly broke into pieces, and all hands had to turn out to make her fast to a new quay. Perhaps they had just got to sleep again when the same operation had to be repeated, for the ice broke time after time, and kept the unfortunate sea-rovers in constant activity. It is enervating work, being always at one post and sleeping with one eye open. They had a hard time to contend with, our ten comrades, and the calm way in which they took everything was extraordinary. They were always in good humor, and always had a joke ready. It was the duty of the sea-party to bring up all the provisions and outfit for the wintering party from the hold, and put them on the ice. Then the land party removed them. This work proceeded very smoothly, and it was rare that one party had to wait for the other. During the first few days of sledging, all the members of the land party became quite hoarse, some of them so badly that they almost lost their voices. This came from the continual yelling and shouting that we had to do at first to make the dogs go, but this gave the sea party a welcome opportunity of finding us a nickname. We were called the Chatterers. Apart from the unpleasantness of constantly changing the anchorage on account of the breaking up and drifting out of the ice, the harbor must in other respects been regarded as very good. A little swell might set in from time to time and cause some disagreeable bumping, but never anything to embarrass the vessel. One very great advantage was that the currents in this corner always set outward, and thus kept off all icebergs. The sledging between the ship and the barrier was done by five men to begin with, as the carpenters were engaged in building the house. One man had also been told off as tent guard, for we could not use more than half our teams, six dogs at a time. If we harnessed a full team of twelve, we only had trouble and fights. The dogs which were thus left behind had to be looked after, and a man was required for this duty. 
Another of the duties of the tent guard was to cook the day's food and keep the tent tidy. It was a coveted position, and lots were cast for it. It gave a little variety in the continual sledging. End of section 11. Recorded by Ken Campbell.